Turn in your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and 4 with me. And we will go through this text together. We'll try to give it justice in light of the context of the book as best we can this morning. Please bow your heads with me as I ask for help. Heavenly Father, please give me help. Help me bring uh, to remembrance the things that I've studied uh, as I've worked through this text, as I've tried to understand the wisdom that is attempting to convey. Your wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, a, a, a wisdom that is above the sun, a wisdom that controls and commands the sun, that commands everything in whom we are. It should be a commander of our life, Lord. It should instruct us. It should be bringing to mind the moment we are engaged in particular scenarios in our life, the Word should be ready and available to us, ready on our lips and ready in our mind and in our hearts to act. Lord, help me do that today with this precious text in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the sermon series so far through Ecclesiastes has been broken up a bit, and so it's kind of hard to follow the connections that I'm building here. And some have even questioned, like, Jeremy, what are you talking about? How are you coming up with that stuff? <laughs> well, I don't believe that Ecclesiastes was written by a grumpy old man, just kind of vomiting his ideas and thoughts over time, and that it's not coherent, uh, that it's inconsistent. He's just kind of spilling out all this stuff that he has observed under the sun. And, and kind of lumped in with that are some here, you know, nice things to say, but really in the end of it, uh, leaves you in despair. Um, as I prayed earlier. I don't believe that's the, the point of the book at all. As a matter of fact, I believe this book is meant to bring great joy in your life. I believe that this book um, is, is designed for that very purpose. Now, you might look at it and say, wait a second, Jeremy, you're talking about a lot of grumpy stuff, a lot of very dark stuff. Solomon goes through some, some things that are really hard to stomach, they're hard to think about. And in the end of it, uh, when the predominant theme is your life is vaporous, meaningless, in that sense, that doing things really as you strive for them are really just grasping for wind, how in the world could this book be written for our joy? Look, I believe that if, if you understand Solomon's argument, I believe it is a coherent argument from beginning to end. Solomon is trying to reset our understanding of who we are before the living God. And if you lived only life under the sun, this book would bring, bring despair. This book addresses everything that one could possibly think of in terms of a meaningful life under the sun. And really what I believe Solomon is doing is dashing that to pieces. You can't find a meaningful life under the sun. But those who are in Christ, those who are the righteous, those who walk with God, have a wisdom from above, as I shared last week, that gives us the filter by which we should interpret all things in our vaporous life, which could appear to be meaningless in many cases. Everything that I put my hands to, everything I work hard for, seems to in some way come to an end. And all I'm going to do at the end of this life is return to the dust, right? Yeah, that's true for both the wicked and the righteous. However, in the end of it all, there's something uh, that we have to look forward that the wicked do not for those who are in Christ. Note starting in uh, 
verse 16, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. It's a, it's a subject that he constantly repeats, and he constantly wants us to remind us of. And note, in the end of the book, the conclusion to all things, as we've studied them out and tried to exhaust our understanding of life under the sun, what does he say? That God brings all things into judgment. Notice that. I'm seeing these, happen, these injustices happening. I'm seeing those who should appear to be righteous but aren't. There's just wickedness within them. I think a good example of that, as I mentioned last week, were the Pharisees that Jesus was addressing as whitewashed tombs. There's this appearance of righteousness, but yet there's inward ravenous wolves, as he called them, right? We have a tendency to fall into those categories. If I might, real quick, read to you a song by a man who I just discovered recently in the Country Music Awards, uh, Jelly Roll. You guys know Jelly Roll? You laugh. Don't be laughing. He wrote this song called The Lost. It's really interesting. Let me read it to you. He said, I see your fire and brimstone, that billboard sign on the road, but you can't scare me to heaven with gasoline on my soul. This, that backward, the back road baptism, weed smoking, syrup sipping, whiskey river carried me home. I've been known to find my, my kind of people that ain't at home underneath church steeples. You'd be surprised the places I find Jesus that ain't the regular crowd. I've been down and out and I'm better with the lost than with the found. My solid ground is better with the lost than the found. I'm just going to share that. You guys could read the rest of the lyrics, but what is he saying? What is he getting at? I'm better off with the lost than with the found. I found Jesus in back roads, not under steeples. It's the very thing that I believe Solomon's trying to address. right? So we're not finding justice in the courthouses in society, and we're not finding righteousness where it should be presented. There's something going on. There's something very wrong with this reality as we do life together. We struggle, don't we? We have shortcomings, failures, difficulties, and we tend to hyper-scrutinize one another underneath the steeples. And that's what I think he's driving at. I've been pressed out of the churches. I have no interest in being... I actually have more... uh, I can relate more with the lost than I can with the found. These people who say they're the found don't act like the found. They act a lot more like the lost, and the people who are the lost act a lot more like the found. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said about his ministry? Why do you spend time with sinners? Right? You're a drunkard, you're a glutton, right? A wine bibber. This guy spends time with tax collectors. The lost. He's like, they're the found ones. You righteous ones, right, are the lost. Which is really interesting that Jelly Roll would say that. Yes, he's been quoted here today. We can say we've officially quoted Jelly Roll in a sermon. Why do I bring that up? Well, there's a question that Solomon poses as we move into chapter four text. Why do I bring this up? Why is this so important? Yes, God said he will judge them, but then he talks about men in this particular way. That we're like beasts, really, at the end of the day. Our life is limited. We die, beasts die. We breathe the same air they do. They breathe the same air we do. And all is vanity. Beasts do beast stuff, and we do beast stuff too. Notice that. We act like beasts when we uphold courts that are unjust. We act like beasts when we pretend to be righteous when we're not. And we all return to the earth, but God will judge that. God knows where the spirit of man goes and where the spirit of beasts go, doesn't he? And so he asks the question, he says, who can bring, let's say us, or him here, to see what will be after us? I believe the question is something like, is there life beyond death? 
Is there any meaning beyond this life? Really, is there any meaning in this life? Does true justice exist? Does true righteousness exist? Is it possible to know any of the answers of these questions with real surety? You know what's interesting? Many people would say no, and I guarantee some people in the pews today would say no. And this is where I find the greatest problem in both sides of the camp. On the one side of the camp, people would say, like Pontius Pilate, what is truth? In the middle of the most unjust court hearing ever of all time, Jesus Christ being condemned to the cross. What is truth? Truth is living and alive, standing right in your face, staring at you. That's what truth is. And you should be judging according to that truth, the truth which comes from heaven above the sun. What is true righteousness? Well, it's certainly not the Pharisees. It's standing right in front of you, face to face. Jesus Christ is living, breathing righteousness of God. He is, as it says, the imprint of the Father, the exact imprint of God. He's the one that ultimately reflects God. We can know Him. Jesus even goes as far as to say, if you follow His Word, you're a disciple of His Word, you can know the truth, and the truth will do what, saints? Are you sure you can know that? Does it really set you free? Free from what? You might ask. Well, free from your sins, for sure. But a freedom, I believe, from questioning reality. A freedom, I believe, that as you live and act and you trust in God's Word, gives you an insight that unbelievers will never have. And you could have entire surety about it. As a matter of fact, and I know I quote this verse all the time, and it's good for you to hear it again. Jesus says in John 17, 17, to the Father, separate them, make them holy, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Is true. It is true. It represents God. You remember when I said last week about a man is only as good as his word? Well, this is a direct reflection and extension of God's character and who He is. And as we trust in it, Him being the Creator of all things, we have the filter by which we can navigate our lives. We must know the Creator, we must trust His Word in order to live with surety in His created order. And if we don't do that, my friends, you are stumped by the wicked in the same way, left with unassurity, mere probability, in sinking sands of human autonomy, and left to really whatever you kind of come up with your life should look like. Isn't that what we see in the world today? This is why justice is perverted and why righteousness is perverted. People want to do what's right in their own eyes, don't they? We are tempted toward that. And this is exactly what I think Solomon's trying to answer through a series of challenges that the unbeliever might rail. And we might even be challenged with ourselves. Let's go on to this under-the-sun vantage point. In verses... Uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1-3, through 3, he says, Again I saw the oppressions, or maybe another word, good word is exploitations, that are done unto the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who had not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Okay, that is quite the perspective, isn't it? It is so bad out there, and the oppressors are so powerful out there, we would be better off to be dead. We'd better off to not even be born. What kind of oppression do you think he's talking about? Exploitation. Let's look at the problem in society today of what the oppressors or the oppressed might look like. So despite our long history of oppression and exploitation, 
and its encouragement of destructive abuses and enslavement of people throughout history, note what Solomon describes in the beginning. It's an unbreakable pattern, isn't it? And you know what Solomon says? So what? Wait, wait, what, Jeremy? Yes, so what? So what that it's bad? So what that people are being oppressed? So what it's an unbreakable pattern throughout all history? If your vantage, vantage point is only under the sun, so what? Well, Jeremy, that's messed up. Yeah, let's talk about some messed up stuff. All over the world, various people groups are being uh, oppressed and exploited. Let's, let's take a look at, look at a few examples. Sexually speaking, there's prostitution, brothels, escort agencies, exotic dancing, stripping, phone line sex calls. Internet chat rooms, pornography, mail order brides, and sex tourism is one group. There's coercive labor, punishment, violence, intimidation is used to accumulate, to encourage people to accumulate debt so much to the point where they sell themselves into slavery. People keep back identity papers in order to exploit people in this coercive labor. They threat to expose them to immigration authorities. And this is commonly done in manufacturing, factory work, hospitality, construction, agriculture, fishing, car washes, and nail bars. You guys all seen these places. You're all familiar with them where people are being taken advantage of. Think about that. How messed up that is. It's really messed up. Let's go on. How about domestic servitude? Where people work incredibly long hours with very little pay. And they're mostly taken advantage of for that reason. And they fit the uh, previous category of coercive labor. What about forced marriage? These folks are often threatened with physical violence, even sexual violence, to gain access into a country in order to gain access to benefits. How many people do you know like that? Where they intentionally marry someone from another country so that they could gain access and benefits that they otherwise wouldn't have, and they would be willing to undergo physical violence and sexual violence to do so. I heard of a, uh, a message recently that just came to mind uh, from a gal who is from North Korea. She escaped North Korea. She goes to China. She's smuggled out of China and immediately smuggled into, guess what? Human traffickers. And these human traffickers are... They, they know what happens to people from North Korea when they escape North Korea, uh, that if they were to return them, it would be death. It would be the death penalty for someone who had left. It's seen as an act or a sign of treason. So what do these traffickers do? They take advantage of her. They rape her over and over again. And they threaten to turn her back into North Korea. And then they sell her off into slavery for a period of time. And she escapes her captors. She moves to... Um, the U.S., and she's free. And she's now spending a time on a circuit telling about all of her exploits. And she, on this circuit, happened to sit down with a group of people that she might be like, thought might be like-minded, like Pelosi and all of her cronies, for a dinner. And, and included in that group was, um, uh, what's the guy, the owner of uh, Amazon? What's his name again? Yeah, him. What was his name? Bezos, yeah, that's right, yeah, Bezos. He was in this dinner, and they were flying on this private jet together, and she thought, how exciting, this is so neat. And uh, she was bringing up all of her experiences as she came to this country. And uh, by the time it got to dinner time, she was sharing with this group of people. And what she realized, it was this very group of people who had been some way involved in her trafficking. And dinner got really uncomfortable. And on the way, on the way back, Bezos, which was like, you know, buddy-buddy with her and wanted to, you know, maybe produce some more speaking engagements and feature her and things, decided not to talk to her anymore because he was really worried that certain buddies that might get find out 
about these things would cause his business to collapse. Yeah, that's going on in society. And this poor lady was left in the dust. A wonderful woman who was taken advantage of. There's forced criminality in our society. Forced criminality in the sense that people are forced to do drug trades and distribution for drug dealers. They're forced to beg. Think about the person next time you see them on the side of the road as they hold up their sign, typically sometimes very well-written signs, very provocative signs, very intriguing signs that encourage you to give them money, right? In some cases, and, and I don't know the statistics, but many of them are forced to do that. Many of them work for someone under threat for fear of their life in some cases that they have to collect a certain amount of money per day on that street corner and turn it into them. Pickpocketing, bag snatching, ATM theft, and selling counterfeit goods. You know people who call you uh, on those, you know, those calls, that, the scammers? Many of them fall into that human trafficking category where they're forced to do labor. It's not something that they're like choosing to do per se, but they're actually doing it by force of someone who's trafficking them. And then there's a really scary one, and one that bothered me a lot when I read it, organ harvesting. There's a whole trade, there's a whole industry surrounded by organ harvesting. There are various different ways that they do this, but listen to this. Here's an example. A victim formally or informally agrees to sell an organ. So they come up to him and say, hey, I got two kidneys. I can do with getting rid of one of them. I can make some fat cash, right? And it's typically not done in a very like nice hospital setting. It's done in a sketchy room, right? And you're giving up this kidney, which is super dangerous. You can die from that, by the way. I would not encourage you to do that. But they make the agreement to do that. But then they're cheated because they're either not paid for the organ or not what they were promised. Now imagine that. You give up this precious organ of yours and then you get cheated out of it. So back when I, yes, yes, before I was a Christian, I sold drugs. Okay, shocked. You'd be shocked about that. I sold drugs. And um, there was one time where I had uh, fronted someone a, a pretty decent amount. And the expectation was that in fronting them this, that they would pay me, right? And typically, what happens in the drug world when you don't pay the dude that fronted you? They come after you. And in some cases, kill you. For the most minuscule amount. It's just a matter of principle, not the amount. You're going you're gonna to jack me of my stuff, dude? I'm, I'm going to kill you. And then nobody will ever do that ever again. I'm going to set a precedent here, right? Um, imagine doing that with an organ. I got jacked for my stuff. I'm like, whatever, bro. I'll just figure it out later. I sell plenty of this stuff anyway. I don't need the money. And I'm definitely not trying to go after people. That's not, not what I, I... I didn't care about that. But can you imagine? Like, I felt like cheated big time. You know, that was I, my hard-earned money. Well, selling drugs. I, I earned, right, rightly. And someone took that away from me and didn't pay. And they just ran. They never returned my phone calls. Never heard from them again. Could you imagine doing that with a, an organ? That's messed up, man. That is really messed up. And then there's an ailment uh, angle. So what they do is they take a vulnerable person, right, who can be manipulated, and they treat them for an ailment, whether it's real or not. And that ailment may or may not even exist. And they remove the victim's organ without their knowledge. So imagine you go into a doctor you think is legit, Right, and it, it, this is in most like foreign countries, not necessarily here. That might happen here more often than I think, but I imagine this happens in countries where it's like you really are trusting this doctor. You go in to see them, they diagnose you, they put you under anesthesia, and then they they swoop 
one of your kidneys. Or maybe just clean you out and you never wake up. Can you imagine that? Like, They're doing that to people right now all over the world. You know why? Organs are worth a lot of money. A lot of money. And then there's extortion where they actually kidnap people um, from their family and remove them without consent. We're just taking those things. Okay, Those are our, our organs. We're just going to punk you for them. Okay? I can't imagine what that would be like. That is really messed up. Okay, And God allows that to happen in His sovereign control over the world. How might you think about that? Well, let's turn to Job and let's see what he has to think about that. Job chapter 3. Read this along with me. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God have above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not become the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joy cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up the Leviathan, let the stars of its, of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for the light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it is because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why did the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins in themselves, or with princes who had gold and filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden as stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at cease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in the soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, who God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Maybe they are better off unborn or dead. According to Job, he experienced some pretty traumatic stuff. Amen? Let's take a look at uh, what the Psalter says. What does the Psalter have to say? You're like, Jeremy, you're not really making a case here for this book not being doom and gloom. You're not helping out. Well, let me help push that a little further. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out all day night before You. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit in a man who has no strength, like one who set loose from the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and in the re regions of the dark deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut up in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon You, O Lord, I spread out my hands to You. 
Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But, O Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my, my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved, my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. No resolution in that psalm. I imagine that kind of psalm, that kind of prayer, the kind of crying out that Job would have had. He said, it's better off being dead because of what I'm experiencing where can those find any sort of comfort and consolation in the midst of this trial and difficulty? I'd probably be asking the same question if I was undergoing this sort of oppression. The next text uh, in Ecclesiastes 4.4, he again rails. He says, following this argument, And then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Envy is our silent killer, isn't it? All that we're working for and we're striving for is to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. We're always trying to have a nice car like those guys, a nice house like those guys, right? Make sure we have enough money in the bank account, looking with some sweet threads like those guys. All of our work and all of our stress is just to try to keep up with other people and what they're accomplishing. Envy is a killer. Although in a few cases, uh, envy can be a positive motivation for what we do. Um, like in the example provided in Israel, they were moved by jealousy by the Gentiles' acceptance of Christ that they were in the kingdom in Romans 10 and 11. More often than not, it drives us towards wicked ends. But under the sun, so what? So what that people are envious? So what that they do that out of that motivation? Who cares? At the end of the day, if life is merely under the sun, again, we're like beasts, right? That we go to the grave. The grave, maybe we're better off there. Maybe it would be better off if we weren't born. Maybe the envious are oppressing us. So what? That's what I believe a Solomon's driving at here. So what that that happens under the sun? What is envy really? Well, it's something that encourages us to pursue what isn't rightly ours and what we haven't earned. That is, another's gifts, their possessions, maybe a position, or their achievements. Think of examples throughout Scripture. I'm sure these will come to mind almost immediately for you of how many there are. There are so many. Um, ones that just came right off my mind as I was listening this out was Cain killed Abel. Why? Well, he was envious of God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice. Think about this. It's not the actual act itself but it was the way someone had responded and the desire to receive that same response. I, my kids, you know, I bring them up in every one of my sermons. I will not say anything by name. Not today, at least. But we see this in our children, don't we? Mom and dad give some kudos to one of the brothers or sisters, right? And out of anger and frustration and jealousy, the other sibling lashes out at them. Right? Like that. In this case... 
Cain killed Abel because he was upset that God had given him acceptance for his sacrifice that he offered and not Cain. Right? It led to him murdering uh, his brother. Joseph's brothers, out of envy, sold him into slavery. What were they envious of? His father's favor and the dreams that he had about ruling over them. Hey guys! You know, imagine a little brother coming along. Got this sweet coat of many colors, right? That dad gave to him, this nice gift. Right? He's so excited and dad's just pouring out all his love and affection on little Joseph, right? And now the brothers are like, dude, I don't like this guy, man. And then he's having these wild dreams about ruling over us, right? Little brother's getting punked right now. Matter of fact, they thought about killing him first and they're like, well, probably shouldn't do that. Going a little bit too far. Let's just sell him into slavery and then tell dad we killed him. That's messed up. And people do that all the time out of envy for what? Another's gifts, their possessions, position, or achievements. Okay? David envied Uriah's wife, which ended up leading to adultery and murder. This man not only committed adultery with this dude's wife while he was out to war and he was back at home, which was unacceptable for a king, right? But this dude commits adultery with his wife and then goes out and kills the guy because he doesn't want him to find out. Why? Because he just wanted his wife. That's messed up. That's really messed up. People do it all the time. Solomon's like, yeah, so what? Under the sun? So what? People do that all the time to each other. Right? Think about it. Ahab and Jezebel's envy for Naboth's garden <laughs> led to murder of Naboth. Jezebel goes back and goes, you're the king, you do whatever you want, so what? He doesn't want to sell you the garden. Kill the dude and take it. And that's exactly what they do. They kill the man for a vegetable garden. That's messed up, Solomon says. So what? So what that happens? People envy people's stuff all the time under the sun. You're a beast. That's what you do. You're going to return back to the earth anyway. Envious of perceptions of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, so-called. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God about withholdings. Think about that. They wanted to look a certain way, right, among their fellow Christians. Look, man. Look what we're look what we're contributing to the kingdom. Look how awesome we are. <laughs> you know, we sold land, man. Here you go, guys. Oh wow, Ananias and Sapphira are so cool. You just sold everything. That is so amazing, right? And they're doing that for what? To be perceived a certain way by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What happened to them? God killed them for lying to the Holy Spirit. God takes that pretty seriously. Amen? Simon the magician was moved by envy for the gift of the Holy Spirit to the extent that when he saw the signs and great miracles performed, to his amazement, above and beyond what he was capable of, he was considered to have the great power of God. But when he saw what they did, what did he do? Hey man, can I buy that? I will pay you to lay hands on me and give me that Holy Spirit power. What did Peter say? He rebuked him to his face. Told him basically God would kill him for saying such a thing. That he doesn't understand what the power of the Holy Spirit's for and it's not to be used and abused that way for personal gain. And he repented. And the greatest of all envies, in my humble opinion, was in Mark. The Gospel of Mark, and it's in other Gospels, but it says specifically that the chief priests were so envious of Jesus' ministry, they condemned Him to the cross as a result of it. Mark 15.10. Think about that. Envy, they were so overwhelmed by it, they condemned Christ to death. 
innocent man who is doing wonderful things, right? Think about what envy motivates the drive is. Well, Solomon asked, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with envy and jealousy? Turn to James 3. James says what's wrong with that. Doesn't he? I should have marked it. It's hard to find in my Bible. It's such a little print. It's like a millimeter. Okay, James uh, chapter 3, 14 through 16. Okay? Verses 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Think about that. Look what bitterness and jealousy causes. It's some sort of an arrogance in terms of like saying that you have something or that you know something or you possess something that you don't. Um, and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. Notice that. I love that usage. This isn't wisdom that comes from above the sun. This is earthly, under the sun. It's unspiritual and it's demonic. Why? Well, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, listen to this, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So one could say, envy is what drives the oppressor. Envious of what these people have, and they're willing to go so far, they will commit the most vile thing in order to get what they want. And it will cause disorder. Well, to leave it in, in, in suspense, let's just continue to ask the hard questions. So what? So what that that happens? Well, let's move on in our text to verses 15 or uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 5 through 12. I told Greg that I'm going to take under the great ambition of completing this entire chapter today, and I will do it. The fool finds in his hands and eats his own flesh. Holds his hand, excuse me, and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness, he thinks, than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has none other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. I want you to think about this. In Scripture, when someone is called a fool, that isn't name-calling. I learned this from Dr. Bond. It's not name-calling. It's a moral indictment. Think about it. You're foolish? That's not like, hey, stupid. It's not like that. It kind of works. But it's not like just name-calling for the sake of name-calling. It's a moral indictment. You're behaving immorally. How so? To be foolish... Is an immoral act. Biblically speaking, laziness is immoral. It's immoral to say, you know what? Man, it's really hard to do all that hard work. Full of toil, and I just know it's driving after wind anyway. Better to just rest and sit back and just chill and not have to worry about anything. Think of all the Proverbs that address the, the laziness factor in people and in us. That is immoral, and we need to stop. If that is our attitude, we need to repent. It's also immoral to be stingy and selfish. We've learned that through our generosity sermons that we've given the last few weeks, um, the last couple of weeks. And isolation is also dangerous for us. One could say isolation is also immoral. Like 
Don't neglect the gathering of one another. Spend your lives with one another. He who isolates himself, what does the Scripture say? War against all counsel. Okay? But under the sun, who cares if someone does that? Who cares if someone is lazy? Who cares, really, from this vantage point, if someone is a miser or a loner? Think about it. Based on the two things that we just read, people who are envious tend to be oppressive. And if one finds himself in an oppressive work situation, which most of us think we're in, not true for most cases, but if we're in an oppressive work situation, like it's really hard, maybe we're not getting paid the way we should be. Maybe the work we're being pressed to do is to be pushed beyond all hours. We've been told maybe to work off the clock. Teachers out there, I know, will give a hearty amen. Spend a lot of time working off the clock and don't get paid for that. But yet you're expected to do that. Think about all the oppressive work situations that you face. Wouldn't it be an easy temptation to just go, man, I'd rather be lazy and stay at home? Um, I asked my wife about some of the employees that she's had to hire and move on who have said that basic very thing. You're like, wow, that person calls in all the time. Better to be lazy and stay at home. Right? Not really. But I still would like to get paid. That'd be neat. Don't have to deal with all that toil. If riches never satisfy, then isn't poverty better? Let me tell you a story about a friend of mine named Alfonso. He said that exact thing. It's so hard to work. You have to be responsible. Okay, I met this guy on the streets. Preached the gospel to him. He throws his weed away. Gives his life to Christ. You see him at church. Next thing you know, this guy goes from homeless to having his own truck. He was an arborist. He's running a crew. Got this sweet, new, shiny truck. We get him an apartment. It's a really nice area of town. It's, he's set up, man. He's got his own little living quarters space, beautiful home. And this guy is like, wow, from zero to like hero. Like it was just amazing. Rags to riches almost, right? Story. And then like he fell off. You know how it happens. Like people start isolating themselves, become loners. Why? Well, they don't want to let everybody know they're in sin again, right? They, so they just go, well, probably better off to go over here and not be exposed for my sin, right? Um, I don't see him for a long time. I think it was a matter of a year or so. It might have been longer. I'm at the coffee shop I usually hang out with. And uh, lo and behold, who's digging in the trash can? Alfonso! I yell at him. What are you doing, bro? And he's like, hey man, starts eating this sandwich he pulled out of the trash can. I'm like, that is disgusting, dude. I'll buy you some food right now. Why are you eating out of the trash can? What have you done? Oh, man, all that responsibility? Nah, not for me, bro. I don't have to have any responsibility. Dude, I am free. I'm set free, man. And this guy is trash. I don't know how long he'd been homeless at that point. Spun out on meth, of course. Eating out of a trash can. And he's telling me about freedom. Like, dude, you are not free. You are a slave to your sin, my friend. You need to repent, bro. You need to walk with God. What you are doing is immoral. You are not free. And you are, you are completely going against all the things that the Lord has gifted you and you are leaving your gift aside, and you, you, out of a desire to just be lazy, you, you are failing to walk in those gifts, man. You are missing out. You're not honoring the Lord in your life. That was tough for me to see because I watched this man's life change and then he just threw it all away. It's pretty incredible. So the miser, you know, someone might ask, why spend a whole lifetime working to amass wealth when you have no one to support and care for, no one to leave an inheritance to, and you can't take it where are you going when you die, right? There's nothing, There's you can't take it. So why work, why be generous, and why build relationships? So what? Some tough questions Dude, Solomon's challenging us with. 
Let's move on in our text. Ecclesiastes 4, 13-16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw the living who move about uh, under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Now, I had to read this like 15 times to try to understand what Solomon was saying here. It's really hard, but, but it's very similar to the story that we read in Sunday school today about Saul and David. I'll use them as examples. Saul was a wealthy man, came from a wealthy family. He was a very handsome guy, according to Scripture. Right, Had everything going for him. Uh, what ends up happening typically with uh, those who are in leadership is they don't listen to instruction. They actually grow in arrogance. And if you know Saul's story, what did he do? He failed to obey the commands of God to the point where God stripped the kingdom from him and gave it to David. This is the old foolish king, if you look here in the text, who no longer knew how to take advice. He had advisors around him, but he was this old foolish, again, moral indictment. He was an immoral king who thought his ideas were the best ideas. And so he stopped taking advice from those around him. And look at the contrast. There's this young man who went basically from the prison to the throne. An example of that might be uh, someone who, uh, like Joseph. Joseph in prison. Joe was a, Joseph was a poor man. He was sold into slavery. And then exalted to a high status in Egypt, right? Very similar. Here's this young man who goes from the prison to the throne. He had been poor in this kingdom. King David was poor in the, king, in the kingdom. He was a Judean that lived in Bethlehem, one of the smallest cities in Judah, um, and he was a shepherd. Shepherds were the lowest of the low in society, and his father was poor. Here's a young man who goes from being poor in prison to, become, to taking the throne from this arrogant king. And there were a bunch of people in this kingdom, he says, along with this youth who's going to take the king's place. And he was a wise young man. And notice, like typically in Scripture, um, the youth aren't often associated with wisdom. The youth are often associated with foolishness, right? But this is a foolish old king when it should be a wise old king, but this is a wise young man, right? Elderly typically aren't fools. They're typically wise people who've lived a long life and are making wise decisions and are capable of providing instruction. Not arrogant people. Why? Because they've lived a rough life. They've seen it. But this king, this rich man, this wealthy man, got to the place where he believed like a lot like, I would say, Nebuchadnezzar, where it was him that had done everything, him that had everything figured out, and it was by his command that he earned all these riches. And you can imagine how this might unfold. So he's removed from his position, and this young man's placed in his place. And it's over this great, vast kingdom. And look what it says. It says, those who came later didn't rejoice in him. Here's this exemplary young man like Joseph. What does it say later on about Egypt, this exemplary young man and Joseph, when it came to an envy about the growth of Israel? Do you remember? And they no longer remembered Joseph. They forgot about it. I think that's exactly what I think this is who, who Paul, uh, Solomon might be thinking of. Here's this man who went from prison, poor, broke, destitute, sold to slavery, and somehow achieved the status of the right-hand man to the throne of Egypt, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful nations in history, who ruled so well and ruled with wisdom, a wisdom from on high, a wisdom that wasn't his own, 
who preserved Egypt and actually made Egypt even greater power center at the time, became the father of a great nation who that nation ended up getting put into slavery, oppression, because the Egyptian leadership failed to remember Joseph. It doesn't mean like they forgot about him. No, it's like we don't even want to put him in our mind. We're not going to even acknowledge who he was in Egypt. We're going to put these, we're going to enslave these people because they're, they're a potential threat to us, right? We might even be tempted in our time, uh, as we make apply this text to what we go through, um, if we're unhappy with the present conditions of our own government, we talked about that a little bit last week, right? We tend to push toward leadership changes on a macro level, like the state governors or maybe our presidency of the, of the nation, as though somehow it would provide a path to change our desired end in our lifetime, right? We do that. We work... We complain about it. So when Biden got voted in, right, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, man, we need a better president. You know what they do? They look for the handsome guy, the one who stands in stature above the rest, one who's wise, the one who's capable of presenting himself well. And I'm telling you, I have family members who claim to be Christians and voted for Biden because he had all those features. He presents himself so well. Trump's an idiot. <laughs> look at the guy. The guy's, the guy's not someone who I believe represents my values. I'm sure maybe even many of you were conflicted about it. I know I was. But here's a guy who you're looking at and you're like, yeah, he presents himself well. He's a career politician. Is that always a good thing? No. But what we do is we put someone in power when we're really concerned about the direction of our country, right? And we believe that somehow in the four-year period of time, that's going to make some large impact. Some way, shape, or form, right? So we try to put someone who rep we believe represents us well, but they tend to be a slick salesman, as Greg says. Right? They're a slick salesman. They sold us a bill of goods. They get in there and, man, they have run things amok. And I tell you what, we have a lot of those in power today. Significant changes rarely occur in our lifetime. This might lead us to despair. This might look and go, man, I, I really can't see any way out of this. We have a lot of people saying, well, this is the end. Look, Antichrist is here. Everything's coming to an end. America's going down. It's bad. It's worse than the Titanic. You know, don't, sink, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Just let it go. Let it go. Jeremy, stop trying to go to the city council, bro. You see, look, the minute... Look, Dave... Dave Williams presents this bill, right, about abolishing uh, abortion in Colorado. What happens? It gets shut down. And just a couple weeks later, what are they doing? Let's put in a bill that just makes sure it solidifies that we can kill our children. And they do it. And they pass that with flying colors. It just flies right through. See? See? No use. No, no way. No fruit. No, no sense in doing it, right? No. Not at all. To quote my sister here, Veronica, she says that despite what happens, she just said this out of Planned Parenthood, Despite what happens, what do we need to do? Stand firm in the truth and leave it in God's hands. That's what we're required to do. Despite those who have had long leadership positions and authority who are tempted to grow into arrogance, we should still try to vote in the right people. So even though they may be great leaders, Solomon notes that they're often resisted and rejected by later generations. A fickle people are unfamiliar with the reason why those people were even placed in the position in the first place. I love this. Listen to this quote about a fickle people. The love of change is a dominant principle of selfishness. Insensible to our present blessings and craving for some imaginary good, the man is rarely found who is not more taken up with the prospect of future hopes than with the enjoyment of his present possession. That's a Lord Bacon's advancement of knowledge. And sadly, the crown of the brightest jewels, or the crown with the brightest jewels, like the greatest leader, often tends to be a crown of thorns. And that was true in the life of Jesus Christ. So leaders come in goal, 
People rarely agree. People are fickle. They want what they want, how they want it, when they want it, the way they want it. So why work for change, some might say. Well, there is an end. And the light of the end is this. The end of the oppressors, Paul says in Galatians. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things, saints, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is their end. Those people who do such a thing will not inherit the kingdom of God. Where can true comfort be found then? In the midst of these oppressions. It can be found in the promises of God. Because all are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Our great comforter, according to 1 Corinthians 1.20. And that is true, my friends, despite our momentary present afflictions, Paul says. What is the end of the envious, you might ask? 1 Corinthians 13.4-6 says this, but not, Don't envy sinners. Don't envy them. Continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Surely there is a future. And your, oh, that's Proverbs. And your hope will not be cut off. This is 1 Corinthians 13. You guys might go, this guy doesn't even know his Bible, dude. I'm out. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant nor rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it what? Results or rejoices in the truth. It rejoices with the truth. What is the end of the fool? The miser, the loner. Well, the fool, as Proverbs 21-25 says, the desire of sluggardness kills him. For his hand just refuses to labor. He's just going to die because he just refuses to work. And sadly, he's wise in his own eyes. You can't even convince him otherwise. Nope, this is the way it should be. It's like Alfonso. It's awesome. I am free. I have the greatest liberty. No, you don't. You are in the most bondage you can't even imagine. You are a slave to your desires. You can't be convinced otherwise. The miser, what's up with him? What's his end? Well, Jesus asks, I think, one of the most profound questions about the miser. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You're selling your soul for goods that you can't even take with you into uh, after death. The loner. As I quoted earlier in Proverbs 18, it says, He whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. According to Solomon, he lacks reward for his work. Notice how two work together, they have a greater gain. When he falls, there's no one there to help him, and he freezes to death and is vulnerable to enemy attacks. We live and work before the Lord. Everything that we do is before Him. Listen to Colossians 3, 23-25. Whatever you do, I know you guys know this passage. Do what? Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that He has done, and there is no partiality with God. What about the fickle people? What's their end? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. They can't keep us. They can't 
make us do what they what he wants us to do. I am the God of my own destiny, they say. Well, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In derision of their own mindset, as Paul says in Romans 1, that he has committed to the destruction of their own desires. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a wrought iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Every enemy will be brought under the foot of Christ prior to his handing the kingdom over to the Father. We must unify with Christ in his word. I will close with Ephesians 4, 1-16. through Listen to this very carefully. I therefore, Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high and led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, in saying this, he ascended. What does it mean that uh, mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, until we all maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, listen to this, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, to whom the whole body joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the joy that we can have in Christ. We have Your Word, and Your Word is sure. The reality that You rose in again from the dead testifies to that very fact, that Your ministry was true. The fact that You rose, rose again and then ascended to the throne demonstrates the reality that you reign as Lord over your creation. And in Christ, we can possess the mind of Christ and have the wisdom of Christ to navigate in that reality and have this assured hope. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if we did not have the hope of the resurrection, we are to be pitied among all men. That if truly life was under the sun, all these challenges would drive us to despair. Yet, we are not driven to despair, but we have hope in Christ And this book gives us great joy in knowing the fact that it's not just under the sun, but we have a heavenly wisdom by which we can appeal to in Christ, which you promised to give without reproach so that we would not be tossed to and fro, so that we could have a sure standing, firm faith, a faith that is based in reality. 
unquestionable full assurance.